0: Matthew, you have heard that it was said, Love your enemy and hate your neighbor, or hate you, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? <clears throat> and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Lord. Speak to God. You may be seated, and the kids are invited to Children's Church with Emily today. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, or as it's written, be holy as your God is holy. This Sunday, we jump from the Gospel of John into a bit of a different sermon series that's more what they would call topical, and so when we went through John, we just walked through the Bible, Um, and here we sort of um, pick in the Easter season, the season after we celebrate Easter, which goes on all the way to Pentecost, the gift of the Spirit. And then in the summer, when we jump into uh, the wisdom literature, this summer we're in the book of Job, um, we try to spend some time on a series that would equip the church, that would equip the church for its life, equip the church to live in this world. And so past ones we've done, the first one we did was... Um, called Defiance 101. This was forever ago. Most of you weren't here, but it was about what does it mean as we shifted from from being the church that we were into this new name, Defiance. It actually had two Sundays on each part. One is that it it names where we live in love. Two was that it names our living history. And three, that we worship a God who defies death. That one fit the Easter season very well. Um, After that, we did one on the upside-down kingdom out of the book of Acts. Or more In the King James Version, there's a portion when the disciples are in Ephesus or the believers are there, and it says, these people are turning the world upside down. So we asked in that one, what does it mean to be these people who are turning the world upside down? Um, After that, we did one on the seven practices, which came from a book by David Fitch. I think we finally have none of them left, although if you want one, there might be one in my office. Um, But sort of these seven practices that the church inhabits in the world, Shortly, or the next year, and this, these are all in the same season, Easter season. We did one on the creed. Walking through, what does it mean to confess the creed? Um, one of the themes that I love about that comes from the Rich Mullen song. When he talks about the creed, he says, it, it, I did not make it, it is making me. Um, what does it mean to be a part of a people, a church, those who worship God, who we find ourselves with all these things we did not make, but are making us as we move into the world. Um, the one after that was COVID, and there was no one here, so I did it on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life together, alone. Um, there was no life together; um, uh, life together had gone away. Um, yet I had decided uh, long before that time that that would be sort of the Easter equipping that year, and. Uh, I don't know if anybody listened. Um, I was edified. It was my best one. I'll just say that, so now nobody can judge that because I'm sure we were all in our own worlds. Um, uh, then the year after that, we did sort of this one three, five thing, which is sort of these distinctives we hold as a church that defines church every week on the back of the bulletin. The first one is that defiance church is a witness to the reign of God reconciling all things, that we aren't that thing, but that we are a witness to it. And so as a church, we aren't the people who expect to be the kingdom of God. We expect to be people who are captured by the vision of it, and then we witness to it. We're drawn into this witnessing, and, and in that, um, we as a community are a community that um, points in the world. Maybe that's a good way to point it. We point to what God has done. We are not trying to aim and make the world that way. We don't try to bring the fullness of what God is going to do into the present, but we try in our small ways to point to that. The three, the next, faith, open, love, which is going to come up the next three Sundays, sort of as we walk through this series, is, is these are the theological virtues that we sort of find ourselves drawn into. That, that, and I talk about them in a... Um, and as we go through the series, I'll talk about them in a therapeutic way, too, is that faith is how we understand out of our past. How we understand that God has done something in our past. He's rescued Israel. He has raised Jesus from the dead. That we have moved and responded in faith to that. So much so in our own lives. It's important to remember the own goodness, the goodness that we felt, the goodness that has been near to us, and to live out of faith in that. Hope. Um, we sort of then place in this future virtue. It's looking to that which is beyond, in some sense. We, we have hope that there is God, in God's time, things will be brought all together. That we will be brought into that kingdom and that situates us differently in the present, too. And the last one is love, um, which is one that we talk about how it governs our lives in the present. What does it mean to love in this space, to be in this space? So as we know the goodness of God in past actions, we have hope for the reconciliation and future actions in the present. We are drawn and pressed into the pattern of Christ who called us to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The last one, which uh, I don't... People say nobody ever remembers it because I don't talk about them enough, um, which is true. Um, but uh, the last five then are sort of distinctives here. One is word. We are centered on the word as a community, which is, has two f- f- sort of factors in Christian terminology. The first use of the word is normally the Bible, but when we went through that in the sermon series, we talked about the first verse of the w- word being what John said, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us that we look for the word who is Jesus Christ, and then we also read from that word. Confession was the next one in which we confess the faith. This is where that creed comes from and other things. We confess things that are beyond us. We used Psalm 51 when we went through that too, which had this way of saying, it opens with the lines, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing kindness. Our confession is already in the knowledge of the God of unfailing kindness. And what happens in that psalm, which is placed in the, the context of Beesheba's, David and Bathsheba's story, this, this violent story, this overturning story, um, is that, that when he is restored, after he prays his confession, he says that I will teach, and I will sing, and I will join the assembly. Our church is those who are guilty, so we confess but as we confess, we find ourselves restored, so that we can go, go into the assembly, teach and sing. Um, may the bones that we have broken, that have been broken, rejoice. That we, we, because we know we are come from that place, it enables life and light. Um, table uh, for a long time defines church has been centered on the table in our midst. Uh, when I talk about that, I talk about how every room has a story, and the story of many rooms, like a movie theater, is everybody sits facing the front of the theater. If somebody sat backwards, that'd be very weird. Um, uh, classrooms, um, similar story. Uh, conference rooms, one of the worst, with the technology, like the phone right in the middle that nobody ever uses because everybody's always there. And then there's a whiteboard that is got writing on it from six meetings ago and you sit there, but you're all centered in some sense to have a conversation about an agenda that goes 10 times longer than it should. Um, This is the plight of man in the modern world. Um, (laughs) All that I think is funny. Um, We are the story of this room is that we are centered on the table that God has given us that he meets us in this place. And so our room isn't centered on the preacher or on the music team or on the agenda or anything like that, but centered on the place in which God meets us, that, that which we have received and been passed on to, um, that table which proclaims the Lord's death until he comes again. Order and tradition, we're, were sort of um, separating them I've gotten better at. Um, order is this way in which God had ordered creation in the seven days or six days with the rest. God had ordered space. If you look at the temple, the way the temple is laid out in the Old Testament is a very ordered thing. And so what order, and the other words we thought about for that were um, beauty and peace. What is implied with each of these, order is disorder, peace, um, violence, beauty, ugliness. Um, what order proclaims is that we have sort of this way, and small way, in which we can Uh, are called into having seen God of bringing order back into the world, of putting things that belong together back together. Tradition, the last one, is this great democracy of the dead, um, that we come together as people who aren't inventing this all again for the first time, but as people who hear from the people who came before us. Uh, So this is what we did that year, um, good recap. I think we have stickers with this on it. Uh, I don't know if we still do. If you need it, if you want it to put on something to remember it. Um, but the uh, last one, last year we did um, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the three enemies of the Christian soul. What are the, What were the challenges of the world? What were the challenges of the flesh? What were the challenges of the devil? And how is it that we are drawn into overcoming those through being with Jesus Christ? Um, and those were uh, looking at sort of what many of us would have said in our baptismal vows um, that we promise to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, I believe that in the English version of, of the Book of Common Prayer it says, I will. In the American, I love it because it says, I will with God's help. Um, I feel much better with the I will with God's help if I was just saying I will, like till noon. Um, uh, for as long as I can. Um, so that's, that's sort of what we've done in this season. This, this year, I wanted to do something a little bit different um, and talk about what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a creature? What does it mean to live in this world in that way? Now, this is a theme that comes up, I think, often in my preaching because it's... Um, Near and dear to me. I think it's the struggle of our time in a lot of ways. If you look at church history, the first 500 years, they spent a lot of time figuring out who Jesus was. Was he um, a very ideal human who was able to rest? Was he God who fully came here with no human in him? They spent a lot of time working out what we have um, in both the Apostles Nicene and Athanasian Creed, this idea that he is of both natures fully. The next sort of um, 500 years is working out sort of what is the church going to be, particularly as the church now has sort of moved into a place in which it has some power in the Western world. Um, How is the church going to manage that? This leads to a split between the East and the West where we have the Orthodox Church still today and the Roman Catholic Church still today. Um, This is the part where I'm reminded of a guy at my last church who bought me a shirt once that said, um, history major, I'd find you more interesting if you were dead. Um, I know all this is nerdy, um, the, but it makes some sense. Is that the next 500 years, they work that out. The following 500 years, around the time of the Reformation, what they're starting to figure out is what does it mean to be justified by faith? What is the essence of the gospel? And so this leads to the Reformation, which has its goodness in many ways. It has its challenges, too. Um, We have many, many, many different churches, um, only slightly outnumbered by Bible translations. That's not true. Um, My point being is that it spirals things. And so the church has worked through these different questions, but it seems like today's age, and I didn't come up with this, but it seems like a lot of the resources that I'm listening from hearing is that there's confusion about what does it mean to be human. And the reason why that seems to be coming up is that so many things we knew that made us human before are beginning to be questioned or thrown off. And it's you could pick any number one, one thing, and we've got an example of a problem, um, but if you overload all of them from this idea of um, globalization to the way that work changed, to the way that electricity has changed how we live with our days, to, I was talking to Eddie and Tony before church about how creation is so brutal when you actually look at it, but most of us live air-conditioned lives and so we're never in touch with it. Another way in which we have forced death to the margins of society, most people my age, the only people they have known who have passed away are their grandparents, which would be entirely unique in the history of the world. You've been in a village, in a town with many funerals and many deaths. Um, Historically, you would know many people near to you who died younger than they should have. Um, Technology, the overwhelmingness of news, the noise of the modern world, um, travel, all these things, um, the distinguishment... um, of, of liberal democracy, that we're individuals who can vote and change is new. All of these things push into question, what does it mean to be human? Now, Carl Truman, in his book, um, The Rise of the Therapeutic, the way in which we understand ourselves more therapeutically, rather than more in givens. Um, so we make ourselves, we question ourselves. Authenticity is one of the goals of our age. He asks the students about like, how we ended up here, and they all respond, sin. And he's like, clever answer. But he says that's a bit like um, saying what happened on September 11th is saying gravity. Like technically the two towers did fall because of gravity. But if we wanted to ask questions of how we ended up where we are and what we might want to do about it, we need to get more into what went wrong or what is currently going wrong. Now, one of my favorite ways of describing this is through attention. This is the opening to Matthew Crawford's book, The World Beyond Your Head. And Matthew Crawford, when he wrote the book, wasn't a Christian, it seems he's in the process of becoming one, but this is the opening to his book, The World Beyond Your Head. We are living through a crisis of attention that is now widely remarked upon, usually in the context of some complaint or other about technology. As our mental lives become more fragmented, nobody feels that way, right? We all feel completely whole in our... As our mental lives become more fragmented, what is at stake often seems to be nothing less than the question of whether one can maintain a coherent self. Nothing less than the question of whether one can maintain a coherent self. I mean a self that is able to act according to settled purposes and ongoing projects rather than uh, flittering about. Because attention is so fundamental to our mental lives, this widely felt problem presents a rare occasion where an entire society is compelled to ask anew a very old question. What does it mean to be human? To be able to attend to things is becoming harder and harder. Crawford, in his book, um, uh notes that that the the genius of the airport, you know, you pay for silence, or even the thing you put your stuff in to go through security has an ad in the bottom of it. Everything has been monetized. There's a school district, I forget where it was, that on the back of report cards sold ads, um, which is both brilliant and terrifying all at the same time. Um, You know, great fundraiser. Um, that everything demands for our attention, and it's hard to maintain a co- coherent self. Nobody, I'm sure here, has felt what they call phantom vibrations, which is where you think you have a text, and you reach for your phone, and your phone is someplace else in the house. We are so overstimulated, overdesigned over this, so much so that it's, it's hard for us to attend to things. One of the things Crawford points out in his book um, from the, the French mystic Simone Weil, uh, W-I-E-L, which I guess is how in French you pronounce Weil. I'd say well, but I think I've learned. Um, she, she looked at attention as the ultimate form of prayer. So for Christians, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to attend to things is a very particular question because it's one of the ways in which we, in the words of the psalm today, are engrafted into God and find our lives um, encapsulated within his relations to us. The ability to reclaim some of your humanity has become a challenge in a way that it's it's become its own a project uh, one of my favorite authors Jonathan Franzen wrote a book called Freedom and they were like why do you call it freedom one of the theories is he called it freedom because the software that shuts off internet access is called freedom to attend to writing a novel he used software that shut off internet access and then gave the title of his book freedom um, we live in a time where at least I think it's hard to make coherent selves. And that raises a challenge. This is from Justice Kennedy in a famous Supreme Court case. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one owns concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. He might be right about liberty, but this is, I've said this before, you want a job, kids, a dog, a hobby, a house, a healthy life, um, some good food, and to be able to sleep at night, and in the free time you have, define your own concept of existence, meaning the universe and the mystery of human life. And when you get that done, you've got the freedom of knowing you did it. Now, when I look at my own self, I think at what answers I might come up with as limited, to say the least, Um. So we live in this age where this is sort of the goal, is to be able to come up with our own concepts of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. One of the things that I think stands out in this age the most is what I would call the cult of authenticity, that we are questioning always, are we being authentic to ourselves? The older professor who taught me the question authenticity, Joanne Badley, that I had, she pointed out these two texts as sort of the ways in which we might find a way outside of that maze. These were two that we read today from Peter, which is quoting from the book of Leviticus and other places in the Old Testament. Be holy as I am holy, or be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. She says we get the first half. Be holy. Be authentic. Be authentic. Make yourself, be perfect in all the beautiful ways that only Matthew shedden can be. It's not that great. Um, what she says is what we finally need is a more beautiful center outside of ourselves. Holiness that resides someplace else. Perfection that is someplace else that we can see. All meaning can collapse inside of ourselves. One of the things she said, this is a direct quote from her, is she imagines that, that Hitler might have understood himself very authentically. His interior aims were directed to his outside purposes, and they were terrible. It was in seminary. I'm a contrarian, and I push back, and this, that, and the other. But occasionally, one of the younger students would say, or younger my age, same student, would say to me, uh, Matt, I don't feel like you're being the authentic you why is the authentic me assumed to be nicer than the me I already am? Like, if I was authentic, I wouldn't be belligerent. Whereas I think my authenticity is my belligerence. And this raises the question of who gets to decide what's authentic for other people. The authentic version of whoever you guys are, are the ones who make my life the easiest. That's part of the challenge we're going to have when we collapse all meaning into ourselves, to be holy as God is holy, to be perfect as God is perfect. Now, um, the New Testament references here, both of them, I'm trying to think if there's something else I wanted to say before that, um, have the notion in which we become children. The one in the Sermon on the Mount, we become children. The one in First Peter that, that uh, Shelley read, we become children. Um, that as we hear these teachings, they aren't meant to make us miserable. They are meant to invite us into a relationship with something beyond us. And the something beyond us goes by the, the Trinitarian language of father, which is meant to be a relational term for us. It's not just some abstract personality, but one in which we can call father because the way Christ has revealed himself to us in relationship to that one called father. So we're invited into becoming children in this way, inviting and becoming part of it in this way. Um, And I think that's freeing. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, this teaching comes not just at what Jared read about love of enemies, but this whole taking the Ten Commandments are uh, the, the Old Testament law in saying what's the, the depth of them. This is where you shall not look at a woman lustfully comes from um, because that's to commit adultery with your heart. To, to hold anger out for someone is to murder them. This is where that becomes part of it. And so this command to be perfect there is to live within a frame, a world in which knowing the Heavenly Father sets so many of our base human emotions into a different plane. And that plane, then, is to trust the goodness of the Heavenly Father. And that's a radical thing. The new Sermon on the Mount is just bland moral advice. It becomes very hard to perform. But if it's saying, by doing it, we begin to set ourselves in relationship with the Father who is sort of, in this sense, the highest good, it becomes possible in a different way um, to become children of that one. I'm trying to think if there's... I want to get to Psalm 139 for some brief observations before we move on, um, or before I end today. Uh, Rowan Williams, this is, I guess, connected to that point, is the child point is that we are creatures. And in the phrase of Rowan Williams, we have lost the art of being creatures, which is to know that we are limited. Joseph Lear, in his book on... um, what the crow went through in the collapse of meaning in their society, the Native American tribe, the crow, says he, he asked the question of why was such an action courageous? And he says the action was courageous because it takes place in two frames. One is that we are finite, that we live in limited ways. We're not all powerful, and we cannot create the world at our will. And so we are finite beings. Joseph Lear is not a Christian. He's just describing what's true of humanity, that we are full of limits. If we could accept our creaturely lists, we would know that we are limited beings. The second thing, he says, is that we are erotic, which I was like, next summer is the song of songs, not this summer, Um what he means by erotic is in the classical notion, I don't like using that phrase more than you guys like hearing it, is that in our limited sense, we are people who reach outside of ourselves to make meaning. That knowing we are limited, knowing that we are dependent, then we are, we are placed into trying to then reach out and find meaning in the world. This is where I was, I was thinking about that as we are creatures what Psalm 139 captures for us is the sense of transcendence. Um, there's a sense of something transcendent beyond us. Um, and, it, and it seems like in the modern world, if you listen closely enough, the only two places that we sort of hold up with that esteem are like mountaintops and sexuality. The only two places that can pull us outside of ourselves are somehow these nature experiences that are closer to vacation, if you listen to when people are talking about when they experience than them, and then sort of the, the truest identity thing, um, sexuality. Uh, which reminds me, I'll say this in the Song of Songs sermon, but um, there's this wonderful quote that Freud thought, um, I've got to get this right, Freud thought, talk about God was repressed talk about sex but what Christians theologians say is that talk about sex is repressed talk about God Um, that that we find meaning there's there's a higher unity beyond that one in which we've made a God of in the modern world Um, and we've collapsed all our meaning into that one or much of it Um, so erotic um, so the last uh, thing on this section, I'll leave for next time. Psalm 139. Actually, this quote about creatureness is one I did want to get to because it's one I use often. It's easy for me to imagine that the next great division of the world will be between people who live, wish to live as creatures and people who, live, uh, who wish to live as machines. The next great division will be between those who want to live as creatures and those who want to live as machines. If you think about this and keep it in your mind, it seems like we're constantly being offered that bargain. Do you prefer to live in a frictionless world in which things work like a machine? You press buttons and things happen. You summon spirits. Uh, Alexa. OK Google. Mine, mine, mine did not turn on there. Um, you summon spirits to solve your problems. You, you sort of have this free-ranging world in which things just work as they are. Um, Sous-V is a beautiful technology in which you can sort of um, boil your food to the right temperature and then sear it. But there's this way in which it's like you don't deal with flame anymore. Like, we live in this world where we're continually being offered a frictionless experience. And the thing about it that's so annoying is we want it to be like a machine, and so when it doesn't work, we lash out very quickly. Um, I have timers on my phone that, like, keep me out of certain apps for a certain time. But when I want directions to go somewhere and it locks me out, I get very mad. Um, It's like, "Ah, I just need to get to somebody's house, this restaurant, this, that, and the other. And so this machine-like life has its own frustrations with it when it doesn't operate smoothly, to live as creatures. And so where we're going in the next several weeks is um, this, this phrase from David Kelsey. God is understood to relate to us in three complexly interrelated but distinct ways, to create us, to draw us to consummation, and when we have alienated ourselves from God to reconcile us. We're going to spend one week on each of these. What does it mean for God to create us? What does it mean that we are awaiting some future consummation? And what does it mean that when we are alienated from ourselves, God relates among us to reconcile us? You can already see faith, hope, and love overlaid with that. Or my favorite way in which the phrases will learn is that in the way that God cre- creates us, we now live on borrowed breath, is his phrase, The way that we live awaiting consummation, we now live on borrowed time. And the way in which we are reconciled in the present, we live by another's death. Um, Those are the three places we're going. Um, And so Psalm 139, I just want to talk about very briefly. We have this I-it relationship in the machine world and to much of our world. Um, This comes from the Jewish I guess you'd call him a mystical, I don't think that's the right word, um, writer Martin Buber, I-it. I-it is the relationship we have, we are supposed to in some ways have to like material things. But what he contends is that we've moved into having I-it relationships with people. I know when I'm having an I-it relationship often when I'm trying to coax my children into doing something they don't want to do. And it's not for their benefit, it's for mine. Um, I, it is this way in which everything sort of becomes this utensil, this thing, uh, it's operational. Um, it's a very flat way of relating. What he proposes is that we should move, or the deeper relationship that we should have, particularly with the divine, but also with those nearest to us is I-thou relationships. Relating to one as if they are um, of worth. Um, relating to one in a deeper way, relating to one as if the eternal matters. The I-8 relationship, normally the timeline of five minutes matters. But if you think about your marriage or your relationship to your coworkers or friends, you can probably trace some number of the interactions into very I-it ways of thinking. And you can also think of places in which you have been drawn most often I think in our modern world through mourning or awe or wonder into an I-thou relationship as well in which something comes from beyond us. Psalm 139 talks about God in this very I-thou way. God is vastly beyond and it's one, a God who says, you search me and know me, Lord. Now this is Just, I think, funny, this sign is in my house. Bidden or not bidden, God is present. A younger congregant came to my house and said, why do you have a Biden sign in your house? And if you know anything about my political philosophy, Biden or not Biden, God is present is a lot of it. Or it could say Trump or not Trump, God is present. You could pick any political figure you want. Regardless of which one it was during every four years in which we participate in the wrestling match of U.S. politics, Whichever one wins, God is still present. But this is, um, I think, captures the essence of Psalm 139. God, whether we ask for him to be there or not, for the God to be present in our relationships in life, God is there. And so the psalmist asks to be searched and to be known. Search me, Lord, know me. This is both at the beginning and the end of this psalm. And what the psalmist proclaims in those first verses is this idea in which um, God is already there regardless of what he does. You know when I sit and when I reside. You receive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my laying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in, behind, and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty to attain. God is present. The psalmist's life is, is um, within God. God knows it. By sitting down, by getting up. It's within this frame. The second thing he goes to is, where can I flee from you? If I go up to the highest heights, you are there. If I go to the lowest lows, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me. A modern temptation is surely self-negation and the denial of all that is will hide me and the light become dark around me. Even the darkness that I surround myself with will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. The psalmist finds himself um, drawn into the God who is always present to him, one in which he cannot flee. In the next section, uh, 13 through 18, he talks about what then it means to be created. That this God has created him in such a way. He has knit him together. He is fearfully and wonderfully made. Spent a long time this week thinking about what does it mean that we are fearfully and wonderfully made? Because there's a bit in the fearfully part of it, and I did do a word search on it, is it's the word of being afraid. We are fearfully made. You're wonderfully made as well. And we hold these things together. That he is created from this one. He praises him because these works are wonderful. Your eyes saw my unfirmed body. All the days for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. When I awake, God is there too. He then turns to casting off the enemies. Everybody's favorite parts of these psalms. Um, but in this psalm, they are not his enemies. There are psalms written that way, but they are the enemies of God. But the psalmist says, "As God has searched and known me, as He's rooted around in my life, and I've aimed to live in accordance with that wonder and praise and goodness." What of those who have not? God, they are your enemies, and those whom they want to negate or turn aside from all the gifts and the ways in which you have made us part of your creation, you've surrounded us, uh, enveloped us, made it so there is no place we can flee. They are your enemies, so they are my enemies as well. It speaks truthfully at this moment. One of the things I like about the Bible most often is when it speaks truthfully to our challenges, which is, this all looks good, and yet there are people around me who deny its goodness, want its destruction, and want to bring about the distortion of all that is. The New Testament has a way of teaching us of how to relate to our enemies, but it doesn't say we won't have them. Um... We'll still have them. We'll relate to them differently than he does here. But then he ends, um, again, search me, God, and know my heart. Test and know my anxious thoughts. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test and know my anxious thoughts. It's a good prayer to pray after you pray against your enemies because you might also find where you despise creation. Search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. In an anxious age, to be able to invite someone in to say, to say, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is in an, any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So too will be hopefully the point of this sermon series that God will search and know us, that the God who is outside of us will come to us, search inside of us, test and know our anxious thoughts, and in the end, lead us into the way everlasting. Let us pray. God, you have made us your creatures, and more than that, you've made us your children. may we, as we see the multiple ways in which we are tasked with making ourselves in the modern world, find ourselves drawn into you making us. That we begin to see how in creating us, you've called us to flourish on borrowed breath and to respond with hope or faith. that in giving us borrowed time in which we await the full consummation of your creation with you, the return of your Son, and the gift of the Spirit who abides with us and gives us eyes to see that in the meantime, may we be drawn into practices of joyous hopefulness. And as we grow estranged from each other, from ourselves, and from God in the present, May we see in the gift of your Son you've sought to reconcile us to our neighbor, to ourselves, and to you as our Father. And in that we live by another's death and are crawled into practices of love. Be with us now as part of your creation that is always nearer to us and when we awake we are still with you.